Luke 15, 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Sometimes you can hear those testimonies about terrible people who've become Christians, and and very often they're heartwarming stories. They're inspiring, motivating stories, stories about people whose lives have been dramatically changed. They've gone from being rotten people to being valuable members of our society. But sometimes those stories, those testimonies, they can, well, they can shock us. And sometimes they can even leave us wondering whether or not God's grace can really extend that far. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of the most brutal dictatorships that the world has ever known was was Pol Pot in his time in Cambodia. They estimate that two and a half million people in a population of less than eight million people were killed by the Khmer Rouge during Pol Pot's reign. 
Pol Pot had a school in the centre of Phnom Penh uh, that was turned into a prison. Uh, this is the school. It was called S21. And this man, Kiang Kek Yu, was head of security for the Khmer Rouge and was in charge of that prison, a place where they estimate that well over 17,000 people were tortured and executed under his leadership. He handed himself into authorities in 1999, 20 years after the Khmer Rouge fell. But while he was on the run, he came in contact with Christian missionaries on the Cambodian border and he became a Christian. After being personally responsible for the death of more than 17,000 people, he now believes that he is forgiven by God. In 1983, this lady, Carla Faye Tucker, a 23-year-old drug addict, went on a drug-induced rampage with a pick and she murdered two people. She sat on death row in Texas for 14 years and was finally put to death on the 3rd of February 1998. But during her time in prison, she also became a Christian. Her last words, just before the lethal injection was administered, was to the family members who were nearby watching the execution take place. And what she said to them is this, I would like to say to you all that I am so sorry and I hope that God will give you peace through this. Now let me ask, what's your reaction when you hear those stories? How do you feel about the idea that a murderer, and even a mass murderer, now profess to be followers of Jesus? Let me guess, could it be something like this? Oh, God couldn't possibly forgive those people. Or there are some acts that are just too terrible to be forgiven. Maybe you're thinking they don't deserve to be forgiven by God. Or possibly you're just thinking to yourself, I doubt they were really sincere. Now, can I suggest that if you're thinking anything remotely like that, then maybe you haven't grasped God's grace quite as well as you should have. See, what we're looking at today is the idea of the scandal of God's grace. And the scandal is this, that God is willing to forgive people, people who we may even think are beyond forgiveness. We've defined grace this way, God's unmerited and undeserved favour, but sometimes we find ourselves a little, shall we say, offended by God's grace. Now the parable that we're looking at is the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, and it's a parable where Jesus wants to confront us with the scandal of God's grace. If grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favour, here's the perfect example of it in this parable. Now, if you've got your Bible there, you need to note the setting for this parable. Always important to look at why Jesus told the parables that he was telling. And the setting's right there, chapter 15, verse number 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus spent quite a lot of his time mixing with the people who would have been considered the outcasts in the society of his day. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers, people who would have been considered unclean, the kind of people that many people would have thought, well, God wouldn't have any time for them. 
But Jesus did. In fact, he seemed to have spent most of his time with those people. And there are the Pharisees on the sideline muttering to themselves, well, you look at who he's hanging around with now. Can you believe that, that he's actually mixing and talking with those people? So Jesus tells them three parables to help them understand about God's grace. First two are really simple ones. Parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Points really, really obvious. God loves it when sinners repent. God loves it when people turn back to him. They throw parties in heaven when sinful people turn back to God. But all of that was just a warm-up for the big parable that he was going to tell, this parable of the prodigal son. Now, I'm sure that you're familiar with the story. You saw the cartoon and you've heard the passage read. Man has two sons. Younger son comes to his father one day and says that he wants his share of the inheritance now. Now, let's be clear about what it is that he's doing here. He's saying to his father, I couldn't be bothered waiting until you die. Can I have it now? Can I get it early? My inheritance, that is. And quite amazingly, the father is willing to oblige. The son, we're told, went off to another country where he wasted every cent on wild living, is what the passage says. Uh, I heard a friend of mine one time say that it was he blew the lot on fast women and slow horses, and I think that sounds like a pretty apt description. Finally, the son is totally broke. The only job that he could get in this foreign country was feeding the pigs. Not an ideal job for a good Jewish boy, but he knows that he's now hit rock bottom. And in the end, he comes to his senses and decides that he's going to go home. He knew that he had done the wrong thing by his father, that he had sinned badly against his dad. He knew that he was owed nothing by his father. He's already blown his inheritance. And he knew that his father owed him nothing. But he thought to himself, maybe I could just get a job working as a hired hand on my father's farm. So he heads home, partway through verse 20, follow along with it. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and a sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father is over the moon that the son has come back and they're going to do some serious celebrating. And not only has he come back, but he's been welcomed back as a son. That's the whole thing with the robe and the ring being placed on his finger. Now here is obviously a huge lesson in grace, God's unmerited and undeserved favour. The son deserved nothing. And the father wanted to give him everything. God wants nothing more than to welcome back those who are willing to turn to him. He's willing to forgive us and welcome us as children even when we don't deserve it. He owes us nothing but he's willing to show us extraordinary grace. But that's not the end of the parable. There's one further point. In fact, 
the main point that Jesus wants to make from the parable, and this is where we get confronted with the scandal of grace. Standing outside of the party, not participating in the celebration, is the other son, the older brother, the one who didn't leave the farm, the one who stayed with his dad and kept working. What's his attitude to all this? How does he feel about his younger brother coming home and being welcomed back as a brother? Well, it's quite simple. He's resentful. He's angry. His brother, who has wasted everything, has now been forgiven by dad and welcomed back as a son. That's not what he deserved. He thinks his dad has got this completely and utterly wrong. Doesn't he understand what he's done? Father tries to talk some sense into his older son, tries to tell him how wonderful it is that his brother is home, that his brother was as good as dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Now, this story is for the benefit of those muttering Pharisees and tax collectors back there in verse 2. The ones who are saying there are some people who really aren't worth mixing with. And in this parable, Jesus says to those Pharisees, you don't get it about God's grace, do you? You really don't understand. You're the older brothers. You're the ones who are resentful at the idea that God's grace can be shown to others when you should be rejoicing that God has shown this incredible grace, you're muttering to yourself that this whole thing is a ridiculous scandal. But it's not just first century Pharisees who struggle with grace, is it? I think there's a fair bit of older brother syndrome in our age and even in our churches. I know that there is in me So I'm guessing that there probably is in you as well. So what is it that we don't like about this idea of grace? Why is it that we feel a little bit uncomfortable about it? Let me suggest three reasons. The first one is this, and I mentioned this last week. The idea of grace is a foreign concept to us in our society today. We're brought up in a meritocracy We're brought up in a place where things are given to you by merit. You earn them, you deserve them, you work for them. If you want something, you need to earn it. You don't get anything for nothing. I bet you can't think of any area in your life where grace is the guiding principle. Certainly not in your workplace, probably not in most of your relationships. Can you think of any situation where unmerited, undeserved favour is the basis for the way that things operate? Certainly isn't the case with your job. If you want your pay packet, you will need to work for it. Try it. Try not working and see if they still pay you. Just go in, sit at your desk. I don't know, maybe maybe there are a few people here who are already doing that, so maybe I could be wrong. But the idea of grace is foreign to us. See, even when we see those TV advertisements that say free air conditioning with the car, we know that it's not free. We know that it's already been built into the price. And when they say free fries and a Coke, it's only because you were dumb enough to buy the hamburger, okay? It's not free. You're paying for it. You're paying for it elsewhere. 
We live in a world where if you want something, you need to earn it, you need to pay for it. Nothing is free. So because of that, we question God's grace. We struggle with the idea that it can be completely unmerited and undeserved. But we'll see more about that next week. But I think one of the other problems that we have with grace, one of the other things that we struggle with that we really don't like, is that it actually takes things out of our hands. See, I think that's what's attractive to people about the idea of rules or law as the basis of a relationship with God. See, if there's laws, I can know that I've actually ticked them all off, that I've done all of those things, and it puts me in the driver's seat. I'm the one who can affirm my relationship with God because I know that I've done all of the things that I needed to do. My acceptance with God will be up to me. It'll be my effort, not God's grace. And so the message of grace cuts right across that. It says that our salvation is not up to us. It's not about your obedience. It's not about your law-keeping ability. It's not about you earning it or paying for it. It's about God being gracious. It's about this incredible gift that God has given us in his son. And there's nothing for you to boast about. Mentioned it last week and I'm probably going to mention it again next week. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't boast about what you've done to make yourself right with God. Even the faith that you've got was given to you by God. You can't even boast about that. But do you know what it is that we really struggle with when it comes to grace? We struggle with grace because it's just too indiscriminate. And that's what we see in the parable of the prodigal son. God's grace means that rotten sons who've blown the inheritance on wild living get welcomed back as sons. It's funny, we're actually quite happy with the idea that God's grace should extend to me. We just think that there's another group of people out there who, well, it couldn't possibly extend to them. Parable of the prodigal son is a picture where Jesus tries to correct that thinking. But there's other parables where Jesus does the same thing. You know, the parable of the, ta- the Pharisee and the tax collector, these two people who go in to pray in the temple. And this is how it starts. To some who were confident in their own righteousness, who think that they've done enough to earn God's favour, and they look down on everybody else. And Jesus tells the parable. The Pharisee, he thinks he's going to be accepted by God because of all of the good and godly things that he's done. And the tax collector, the complete and utter outcast in Jesus' day, he knows that he's a sinner. And what does he pray? He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And who goes home justified? Who goes home right with God? It's the stinking tax collector. And the godly upright Pharisee doesn't. God's grace can seem pretty outrageously indiscriminate. I mean, it lets people like Carla Faye Tucker and Kian Kek Yu into the kingdom just because they asked for forgiveness. 
But worse than that, grace actually thumbs its nose at really good people, like those fine upstanding Pharisees. There are upstanding people, people who've made a valuable contribution to our society, people who are morally upright, people who've made something of themselves, people who've even helped others, and they're not in the kingdom simply because they haven't put their faith in Jesus, simply because they haven't asked for forgiveness. I mean, it seems like a scandal, doesn't it? That tax collectors, sinners, mass murderers, all forgiven by God simply because they asked for it, and that is why we struggle with grace. And that's what we've got to understand about grace. That's what we've got to accept about God's grace. That it's not just big enough for me. God's grace is big enough for the worst person that has ever lived on this planet. Now, if you understand God's grace, it will make a significant difference in the way that you think and in the way that you act. First, it'll change the way that you think. When God looks down on this world, he sees two kinds of people. Those who have experienced his grace in Jesus and those who need to. They're the only two people that God sees in this world. God has a very black and white view of this world. Ours is shades of grey. But God only sees two people in this world, those who have experienced his grace in Jesus and those who need to, those who have been forgiven through Jesus and those who need to. And if we genuinely understand God's grace, then we'll see the world that way as well. That's not how the Pharisees saw the world. And sadly, it's often not how we see the world. But if we genuinely understand God's grace, that is how we should see the world that we live in. But the other significant difference is this. It'll change the way that you act because not only will you see people differently, you will treat people differently. The Pharisees were appalled that Jesus would talk with sinners and tax collectors. But it's because they didn't get it about God's grace. If we get it about God's grace, we'll be speaking to people about their need to experience God's grace. So let me ask you, are there people who, in your mind, don't deserve to be forgiven by God? Are there people who you think might be beyond God's ability to forgive? If we have experienced God's grace in Jesus, if we have been forgiven by God, if we have fellowship with God through his son, then we'll understand completely the scandal of God's grace. And Paul sums it up quite nicely here in Romans. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the scandal of grace right there, isn't it? But the next question that we have to ask is the one that Paul goes on to ask. How then can they call on the one that they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
If we genuinely understand God's grace, we will know that there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who've experienced God's grace and those who need to. And if we genuinely understand God's grace, we will want those who haven't experienced God's grace to hear about it, to experience it for themselves. And we will want to be those beautiful feet.